Hi guys, I'm Jamie Roberts. You are watching Rugby Wrap-Up. There you go. Coming up next on Rugby Wrap-Up, the Club World Cup proposal and post-pandemic rugby with Mike Friday, George Hook, and Steve Lewis. Rugby Wrap-Up brought to you in part by The Pig & Whistle, the world's best rugby pub, and Lean and & Limber, stretch your way to a healthier lifestyle. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Rugby Wrap-Up. Matt McCarthy in New York City, the epicenter of the COVID-19 virus, along with my man on the Upper West Side, Steve Lewis. We are dealing with it head-on, ladies and gentlemen, but we, are ha- we have a distraction for you. We have some rugby chatter with none other than the legendary George Hook out of Ireland and Mr. Mike Friday, the USA Sevens coach. Mike, are you in England right now? I am. I managed to get home. So, yes, I am, uh, I'm in sunny Bromley. So, and it looks like you got some sunshine coming in yeah. there. Whereas George, if you're in Dublin, uh, I understand that you're you're manning dishwasher responsibilities. But what's the weather like there, and what's the what's the temperature on the ground as far as the COVID virus? Well, first of all, it's it's not unlike Bromley. It's sunny. It's thirteen degrees Celsius. Um, we're we're doing really well. I mean, with the virus, when you think that Britain. Um, has a Trump-like figure in charge of the government who said this would pass and then said um, he'd shake hands with everybody. Um, He did shake hands with everybody and the Prime Minister of Great Britain is suffering breathing difficulties. We've done it rather well. I'm pretty proud of the Irish, really. Um, Over 70s have been locked down for uh, over a week now. Um, I haven't stirred outside door of my house, um, and uh, we're, we're doing well. We're, keep, we're keeping the numbers down. I think uh, there's a lot of different attitudes. I mean, at the end, when the history is written, are the Swedes right, or are the you know the Norwegians right, or the British or the Irish or the Americans? Nobody knows, and until history is written, we're not going to know who's got it right. But it's terrifying. I mean, at my age, like, I'm actually thinking I might never, ever see my family again. You know, it's a real feeling like at funerals have taken place here and there's nobody at the funeral. Nobody. Like, there's just a hole in the ground. Um, So this is serious stuff. There's been nothing like this uh, since 1918, the Spanish flu. Mike, what's it like there? He mentioned Boris Johnson, Mike. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for, you know, for, for, the, for the country. Um, I think we were very fortunate that the Queen, um, she, came, she came out and spoke very, very well and almost kind of galvanised the, the, the kind of the British spirit um, at the weekend. She was outstanding. Um, and, you know, she's 94 or 93 herself. And when she speaks, we do listen. Um, and that's, you know, credit and testament to her and, and, and who she is. But I, I share George's concerns. I mean, I live literally three minutes away from, from my parents who are in their mid-70s. And, you know, I, I've seen them from afar, but I'm constantly out getting them milk, bread, anything he wants. I mean, I think he thinks I'm his own butler at the moment. But, um, you know, whatever, whatever he needs to ensure that they can stay safe and stay at home and, 
and be locked down. And I think that's a similar story for, for, a, for a lot of us. Unfortunately, in the UK, there's still some people that are not quite taking it that seriously. And, and when the sun came out, they felt that they could go out and mingle and, and, and sunbathe and, and do all sorts. Richmond, especially um, at the weekend, was, 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 was poor. And the government are trying not to be dictatorial. But I think if we don't kind of learn quickly and learn fast and, and stick to the rules, I can, I can see it's been even more kind of uh, dictatorial than they have been so far. So it is worrying times. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I worry for my, for my loved ones and my family. Um, but it, it is a, a virus that takes no prisoners. So, uh, you know, we've all got to be mindful and diligent uh, and, and look after one another. We certainly hope that everybody over there is is getting through this. It's it's a tough time. Like Steve, you and I are going through it here in New York, and literally they set up an army hospital two blocks away at the Jacob Javits Center. Everybody's in fatigues in my neighborhood, walking around. You know, we walk up and down the eight flights of stairs because we have a dog, and the dog has to go out at least three times a day. So, my wife is on to me, acting like I'm asleep on the couch after a burdensome day. It doesn't work. But Steve, we got the perfect segue. We have politics royalty and the virus or this is right your wheelhouse yeah well i think obviously those of us north of the border share slightly different feelings about uh, the royal family but um you know anyone making a sort of dignified positive statement in this time is good particularly compared to what you get over here from our, our so-called leader um you know in new york we just had the highest death toll yet i suppose the only positive is you know we're, we're going to get through it faster than other parts of the country. You know, it's uh, how it affects rugby, I suppose, is what the show's about, right? And um, I think what it's done is crystallized some of the problems that global rugby has and every country in terms of professional leagues, uh, unions. Obviously, we've, we've had our issues here, Australia, what have you. So it, it's really just bringing to the forefront or accelerating a conversation about what world rugby should look like when we resume. Oh, what a golden way to allow me to go right into our topic with this panel. And that is, gentlemen, the proposed Club World Cup. George, let's start with you on this one first. The proposal is from the Frenchman, Laporte, who wants to have 20 teams compete against each other, replacing the European Champions Cup. If I'm not mistaken, it's four from the top 14, four from the Premiership, six from Super Rugby, four from the Pro 14, and one each from the United States, from Major League Rugby, and from the top league in Japan. George, what's your take on this? Well, you start from the premise that rugby is toast. Uh, like rugby is never going to be the same again. You've got to start from that basis. Uh, what, what it is, rugby was never meant to be professional, a sport that depends so much on integrity and good fellowship and everything else was never meant to be professional. It went professional, and what we are seeing, um, and we have England, Scotland, and Ireland represented here, all with a phenomenal tradition of the amateur game and the club game. Friday's Great Sport 7 started in Scotland and Melrose, and all these great traditions. And I, forgive me getting emotional, because I'm very emotional. That is on, is on life support. That amateur game is now on life support. What Laporte is now proposing is 
for the French. Like, don't ever think that the France ever came up with a good idea since Napoleon that didn't have France first and foremost in the idea. So what he's got in here is a plan that suits France. It just won't work. Like, the, 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 there, is, there are only 12 months in the year. There are only 365 days in the year. There are only so many games you can ask the players to play. Now, if you take all the top players and you put them into this tournament that he's devised, then you think they have to play in Six Nations Championships or its Southern Hemisphere equivalent. You think that every country needs a winter or summer tour, whatever you call it, in like Australia needed the, um, a tour by Ireland to Australia to get money. Where are you going to fit that in? What it then means is that the Pro 14 will just be an irrelevant tournament of teams playing their second 15th. And then you have four French teams. What about all the owners of the other French teams who aren't in this divvy? What about it was the, the owners of the English clubs? Because you've competing things here. You have, you have Scotland and Ireland, which handled their, their rugby in one way, and you have England and France who handle it another way. In other words, it's owned by sugar daddies. It's owned with guys who write checks. Forget it. Just not going to happen. It's a bit like Britain leaving the European Union. It's never going to happen. Well, that, that that's a that's a topic for a whole different show. But there was a lot in there that you said, and the owners of the Premiership clubs specifically uh, don't necessarily embrace this idea, particularly because it's going to be controlled by World Rugby. Hold that thought. We got a break for commercial been blind since I was four and I've never seen a beer commercial or a beer label none of that stuff influences me I drink beer because of the taste and my beer is Pabst Blue Ribbon it has a taste on the flavor what do you think's on the label I think there's a, a naked woman riding on a unicorn jumping over fire That's good beer. Jonathan Wickler Barbary for Rugby Wrap-Ups, JWB's Words to Live By. Today's Words to Live By from yours truly. You sucked last year, you sucked this year, and you'll suck next year. Try not to suck. If you're in New York City and want to watch some great rugby, have some great food, and some great times, go to the world's best rugby pub, The Pig & Whistle, on West 36th Street. And we are back, just like that, with Mr. George Hook, Mr. Steve Lewis, and Mr. Mike Friday. Mike, world rugby is being asked to shell out a lot of money to different unions now. Uh, with the virus shutting down competitions, shutting down or at least postponing your HSBC 7s series. How would this proposal affect you as a World Rugby 7s coach with your player management? Um, 
Well, I, I think what might come out of this is that I think Sevens will be a completely different strand or business model to what they're trying to achieve in the 15s. And, and I think that's the reality of this. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm a Georgia. It doesn't work. 20 teams across the whole of the world. You've got too many conflicts going on with the domestic professional games in, in the respective unions and who decides which team is in and who decides which team isn't and how do you promote it, how do you relegate, all of that. I think from the Sevens perspective, I think that landscape could be very different off the back of this. Um, I think, does it give World Rugby the ability to reset, relook at the world circuit? Does it give them an ability to look at what the structure looks like in terms of number of teams um, in the series, both in the men's and the women's? Does it allow them the opportunity to reboot, to create that tier two that everybody wants? Um, you know, it could be an opportunity. Do we look to commercialise the sevens um, and, and create the equivalent of, say, that Team Sky that they had in cycling? Do you allow the countries to operate in that way? I think you could argue that there's a lot to be considered, but there's also the possibility of a blank bit of paper. And what do we actually want to build with the World Seven Circuit moving forward? I think we've got a real opportunity to, to, to showcase a, a form of the game which can truly be embraced by all countries around the world, which is very different to the 15s games, which is dominated by these traditional super rugby powers. So we need to create something that uh, allows the new teams to emerge, but also allows the, uh, the current t teams to flourish and, and, and continue to, to improve as well. So I think first and foremost, let's just get through this and see what the damage is. Um, because I, I do fear that there's going to be a lot of collateral damage. I mean. You know, we're feeling it right now um, and we're not alone. I'm, I'm pretty sure there are other countries that are, that are feeling it uh, and there's a lot of uncertainty um, of, what, of what the landscape will look like coming out the other side. But I do think we've got a unique opportunity to possibly re-look at the game um, and clean it up. Um, I mean, you know, let's clean up some of the laws of the game. Let's make it so we, we can create a, a faster moving game, uh, a more attractive game. Um, and, and let's let, let's take advantage of what is a, you know some some really terrible circumstances and, and cars that we've been dealt. You know, from from my perspective, I think the idea of a global rugby calendar would be helpful. Uh, it, and and the reduction of games played by players would be helpful. And maybe this goes toward that. But Stephen, why don't you put on your rugby executive hat on for a second and give me your perspective? in terms of the global calendar and if you're a if you're a club owner and you're, you're you're just having to be to to listen to world rugby run your business again what what's your take on that yeah well i mean i think you, you just highlighted there what the real issue here is like who is who are the masters of the game and what you're seeing is it's not even a foreshadowing it's happening this conflict between uh countries as uh, epitomized by world rugby and clubs George alluded to earlier, which the ways uh, different countries organize the game. But this particular proposal, right, you have Laporte, who is running for vice chairman of World Rugby. Now, his, he's more, he sees this as a World Rugby um, commercial entity, right? So he's looking at it from that perspective. The European professional clubs have discussed something similar. The difference is they want to do it once every four years in conjunction with their current tournaments. Laporte and World Rugby see this as an annual money spinner for them. So this, this fracture, this tension has been building for a while between world rugby and 
club rugby in particular, the English and the French, um, who have the, you know, the wherewithal, the shekels. So I, I think, again, the global rugby calendar, it's um, world rugby's trying to drive it with resistance from other interested parties. And that is the real uh, conflict that we're going to see play out. And I think it, it won't play out necessarily immediately after this. But like Mike said, um, this disaster, right? It, it does give us a blank sheet here. And it does give us, um, it should focus everyone's mind. And can we get a world rugby calendar together? But I, I don't see it being an easy road because these two groups are, are very are conflicted. George, did you ever envision 10 years ago that we'd be in this spot and it would be in this spot because of a global pandemic? I didn't get the pandemic bit, but I knew we were going to get here because uh, the, the smartest guys when the game went professional were the Irish. Um, they, they, the Irish did a very well, That goes without saying, right? No, no, but it's really interesting. You know, the, I Irish, was... the Irish went to the Pittsburgh Steelers and the Pittsburgh Steelers are owned by the Rooney family, great Irish Americans. And, and they went to Rooney at the Pittsburgh Steelers and they said, look, this game's going professional. We don't want to go to professional. We hate it. We don't want it. But we got to do it. How should we do it? And Rooney said, you own the players. And the Irish, unlike in the English and the French, and, and to a lesser degree, the Scots, the Irish got it right. So the Irish have the right system. They own the players that make the decisions about the players. The Scots to a lesser degree. And then England and France are just about all these competing clubs who are owned by, by, by financiers. Now, the professional game was never going to succeed. It couldn't. You can't have a professional game that has only eight countries in it. Forget, like, Friday's lucky. He's in a, he's in a sport, and this is going to be the major sport in the future, sevens, because it's going to be 100 countries in it. Kazakhstan can play in the sevens. They can't play in the 15s. You cannot have a world professional sport based on eight countries in which only three of them can actually win it, i.e. the World Cup. So the game is built on financial sand and it needed something, but nobody knew what something was going to be, but something was going to happen that was going to knock it over. And it was the pandemic. US is bankrupt. Australia is effectively bankrupt. Um, the great, the biggest union of them all, the RFU, uh, is uh, is short of cash. Ireland, who had have had the best financial minds of any union in the world since the game was invented, is running out of money. How many? Like I, hold on, I, let me make one last point. How many New Zealand players are plying their trade around the globe? How many? 400 approximately, right? How can New Zealand have, how can a country the size of Ireland have 400 players playing outside the country? It's the order of, of dominoes falling is USA first, Australia second, New Zealand third, and then the whole deck of cards falls down.
I got to play devil's advocate here for a second because there's a guy named Kurt Flood that would argue your case about players being owned and in, in professional sports. So maybe the Irish don't have it totally right. He's the guy that sued Major League Baseball and became a free agent. And we have that term free agency in all of our professional sports here in America. And that's going to happen. In, there, we just lost Steve. There I'll goes Steve. Back. Hold on. I'll be back. He's, he's coming back. We're running out of time on this segment, so I just want to wrap it up. But, Mike, I got to turn it over to you uh, after what George just said. George makes a very valid point that the World Cup 15s is we, – we kind of know it's one of four teams. And, you know, that's, that's the, the harsh reality of it all. And I think, you know, the 15s world has, has – created inflated salaries and some players will say they're worth that uh, and they're, they're worth what somebody will pay. So the reality is, is that we probably haven't kept our house in order. And I think if we want to create uh, a truly, truly, truly global competition, um, then sevens is, is that, is that key and is, is that vehicle? George is right. Kaiserstan could, if they invested and, and they developed, produce a sevens team that with time and, and, and knowledge and, uh, and, and athletic development could compete on the World Series, could earn the opportunity to do that. So, so for every country to have that sporting aspiration and dream, it is viable in the sevens. And I think that's something that still encapsulates rugby as a sport, is, is the dare to dream part. And that was something that was part of the, the amateur ethos of, of the game. And it was, it was a huge part around promotion and relegation, certainly in the, in the English leagues. So, yeah. <laughs> I just, I, just, I just worry that, you know, we talk about USA, we talk about Australia. I, I fear for South Africa um, as, as another union. And, you know, we talk about the RFU uh, have got severe financial issues. I mean, it hasn't been, I guess, like you say, New Zealand are struggling and, and they're not able to keep their players in, in country because they chase the, the big checks abroad or they get given sabbaticals to do that. France is the enigma. Um, and that, that seems to me to be the... the the league where anybody in the world, you know, be it, be it the island, the Pacific Island boys, go, go to learn to play or go to earn to play. Um, and so I'm not sure what, the, what, the, what, the, what it looks like moving forward, but I think we have to ensure that we maintain the amateur part of the game. We need to protect the amateur community game at all costs because that's where we create the stars of tomorrow. As George said, rich financiers get, get in the way sometimes rather than, you know, I, I, I do agree that the Irish model does give them the autonomy that they require to develop their future internationals while still ensuring that they remain on, on, on their own country's kind of island. Um, and, and I think that's important, um, that you, you should play in-country rather than play around the world and then come back. You know, to both your points about sevens and nations being able to compete – for, for at least a couple of days last week, Steve Lewis was going to be coaching against you in the Olympics as the head coach of Jamaica after Canada dropped out. Right, Stephen? For a day. 24 hours max. <laughs> so listen, on that point, I don't know if you can see this, just a reference to your uh, previous uh, comment. But I actually take issue with George here. I think uh, there is a demand for a professional game. Um, Obviously, we know the, the rich history and tradition of Six Nations. You, you get good crowds for European games. There is a demand from spectators for top-level competitive sport. There is also massive TV and media demand for this. So 
to say that there's only eight countries so there shouldn't be pro-competition is nonsensical. Similarly, I also take issue with the fact that when you say 400 players coming out of New Zealand, it, it, it's not where they come from. You could have 30 R&B singers out of the West End of Glasgow. As long as there's demand for good music, there's a demand for good music. So it's not, it's not where the players come from, where the, where the talent comes from. It's what the audience demand is. And there's a demand for it, both among spectators and more significantly in media. But do you not think, Steve, then the strong get stronger? If that's the case, and and the reality is that if we if we truly want this to be a uh, a global game, and that's the the ultimate aim of say of world rugby, then the reality is that if you've got a domestic French league and a domestic English league and a, and a domestic Pro 14 league, that you should be developing those players in your country to be the best for that competition. But and and I'm not suggesting you don't need outside influences, because of course you do. Um, but restricting those outside influences, I think, is important if, if you want everybody to get stronger rather than just the strong to get stronger. And I think probably that might be what George is probably pitching at rather than where it's gone to the extreme, where if you look in France, they don't have any sort of <laughs> regulations about who comes in from where and what. And, and I think there's a healthy balance. And I think the game's probably got that wrong at international level, which is where you're right, which is where... That's where the, the, the big money is, and that's where TV is, that's where the crowds are. I mean, you just got to look at the RFU. They'll, they can sell out Twickenham 90,000 two times over, and everybody does pay a, a big price for a ticket. So, you know, I, I just think there's, there's got to be a little bit more kind of thought uh, and uh, critical thinking around how domestic professional leagues run. Guys, I got to give George and Steve 30 seconds each to respond because we're basically out of time. George, why don't you go first? 30 seconds, sir. There's nobody watching the game. Steve's wrong. He's, he, he's lured by the fact that the director of television just points the camera where there's a small nod of spectators. But in Scotland, in Wales particularly, there's nobody watching the games. The Southern Kings in South Africa are lucky if they have about 250 people in the ground. There is only a demand, which Mike Friday did, is a demand for tricking them 90,000. But for the overall part of the game, there's no demand to watch it. It's 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 a fallacy. It's a television pretense. Stephen? Yeah, I disagree. I think what really comes out of this is that there should be a reset. I think uh, I think we've got to a point where sort of wages are out of control a little bit. Where as a game, we've been full of ourselves, right? There's too much. This is a chance to bring it back in and perhaps get a bit more realistic. Um, the twin thoughts there, Mike's about. Is it a you know, game for anyone to prosper in? That's important. The amateur game absolutely is important. But there, there is room. There is room for a smaller, perhaps more modest professional setup, in my opinion, going forward. Gentlemen, on that note, we are out of time, unfortunately. But I want to thank you guys. Mr. Steve Lewis from Upper West Side of Manhattan. Mr. Mike Friday Mike. calling in from England. And Mr. George Hook calling in from Ireland. <laughs> on behalf of all true. these gentlemen, I'm Matt McCarthy for Rugby Wrap-Up. Signing off. John Kerwin speaks in the third person. No false. John Kerwin never speaks in the third person. Please hit that YouTube subscribe button, follow us on all social media platforms, and sign up for our weekly newsletter.